Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave Convery. With me today, Lucy. Hi. Roger. What year is this? Who's the president? Oh, don't do that. It never works, does it? It never works. It never works. Good evening, everyone. Well, what have you been reading? Very little. I've I've been busy. Okay, Um, well, you know you have to read things so we can do this podcast. um, I have, I mean, I've done some stuff with the theme, but actual new stuff, only the latest... um, Orbital and uh, the latest Empty Zone, and some kind of vaguely related odds and ends, but the only actual comics are those. Tell us. Actually, have I read anything else? No, I think it is just that. So, Orbital, I talk about every time I read one because I really like it. It's the political sort of, it's mostly buddy cop with an air of political thriller, far future, big gaudy thing. Like, the world it's in is a bit like somewhere half between Mass Effect and Babylon 5. Is this the German policeman? No, that's the fuse. So it's similar. I see. So the fuse is a police procedural set on a space station with a couple of like graveyard shift cops, one of whom is German with the stupid name joke. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, um, this is lighter and foamier. It's it, it would this would it would work okay for all ages. This is a, a moose to the fuse's parfait. I see. Yeah. When you said moose, I thought you meant the current horns. Yeah. Like it, it's not a Adler's. No, okay. no. If anything, it's more of a gazelle. But, um, no, no, it, I mean, it's not a sort of, uh, it's not your full-on kind of saffron foam. It's not affected. But, um, mm. but yeah, I, I definitely say, say some sort of moose. It's, um, what the fuck? Is moose better or worse than parfait? That's purely subjective. I couldn't give you an answer it's to that. Not really a question for the podcast, is it? No. But if you have opinions, write in. No, um, fifth volume of Orbital, uh, the Galactic Confederation is riven by political intrigues and basically no one wants the humans around. Galactic Confederations will tend to be. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's just a bad so convention. All the shit that's been kicking off in the previous issues has led up to a whole bunch of, um, to it emerging that there's a whole bunch of conspiracy stuff going on and our two protagonists, who have a classic buddy cop sort of love-hate thing going on, um, end up on trial for treason and having to escape and there's a giant murder spaceship that's kind of reformed and trying to be nice that's slowly recovering from some stuff it's it's a bit the, the spaceship itself like it's intelligent or? yeah so there's a part of the background is that and there was a previous war to eliminate this kind of hegemonic threat of bio the reapers it's fine yeah. Just... well they're not they're um well, I don't know. They're a bit similar, but it's not—it's not ripped off Mass Effect in that sense. I mean, the aesthetic is completely different. But yeah, there, there are story tropes absolutely in common. They don't—they don't conform that tightly to the to the Reapers. But yeah, there's similarity. Anyway, there's a there's a nice one, and it's 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 in hiding. Um, that's involved in the story somehow. I'm explaining this very badly. It's this uh, volume five is kind of treading water in that it's mostly a chase scene uh, sequence. There's, it's kind of a bust out and escape, and then there's more to come in the next volumes. But yeah, it's 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 still good. It's still fun. It's drawn beautifully. the The realization of the urban landscapes is is quite cool. So there's a lot of um, you got a lot of the space station stuff, and it's less generic than some implementations. It looks a lot better than Mass Effect. But the uh, the stuff on Earth or on some of the alien um, alien environments is quite cool. So there's this giant sort of 
the background to the previous volume is this inaugural ceremony for some stuff with the Alliance and there's this enormous twirly sculpture thing in the middle of a future visualisation of Manhattan. There's just some, there's some nice cityscape stuff going on. Recommended, still. Yeah. Cinebooks? Yeah, it's Cinebook. I'm on a massive Cinebook kick at the moment. I think they're fantastic. Um, they do, occasionally they price some of the stuff dirt cheap on Kindle. First volume of Orbital is really cheap at the moment. Uh, the actual books are of hugely variable quality, like some of their publishing quality is, is terrible, but it's large format, sort of, it's that Tintin size, you know, it's, it's in that Euro tradition. Um, Too big, yeah. then. <laughs> Sorry. I think Perhaps. Is, uh, but the they, they, European album size. They, they, they trot across um, a lot of genres, so they've got a lot of sci-fi, they've got a lot of adventure stuff, a bit of noir. The sci-fi stuff is, is really fun. Yeah, I've just ordered, um, ordered one of theirs uh, today. Which one? Uh, the Marquis of Anoan. Anoan? Anoan? Not familiar with them. Um, so it's just, just come out in English. It's the first volume they've done. Um, called uh, The Isle of Brack. Mm. Um, and it's by Fabian Valman, who uh, did Beautiful Darkness, oh, right, right, right. which I really enjoyed. Um, and an artist called uh, Matthew Bonhomme, um, who's done stuff for Spiro and fairly mm. other, other French ones. So, super looking forward to getting that. Oh, cool. It looks kind of creepy. No, I got a lot of praise for the same book. They they're doing good, just good genre pulp. It's it's just fun. There's a series of three. Um, oh God, uh, Beetlejuice, Antares, and the other one. They're all far off stars. Uh, it, it, what is the other one? Aldebaran. Uh, I think it's Aldebaran, Beetlejuice, and Antares. Antares. Thank yeah. you. Um, also known as the first places you ever get to when you're playing Elite. So they, um, these are chronicles of sort of history of um, future expansion space colony stuff with a bit of space opera mixed in, and those are, I need to chew my way through those, but there are a lot of them. They're the closest potentially life-supporting stars, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I think I can remember these things. So you've also you read Empty Zone as well. Continue to, to yeah, read Empty it's, Zone. it's this again. This one feels a bit interstitial. Um, you like some grubby sci-fi, don't you? It's really nice and run down and nasty. It's it's some good like it's it's really grotty cyberpunk. It's it's beautifully drawn. The art's lovely. I have a huge problem with issue three though. It's it's not the worst example of this I've seen, but it gets kind of male gazy and exploity. Right. Um, after having the crap kicked out of her by a really nasty cyborg, um, Corrine goes to get her robot arm refitted, uh, has some weird trippy hallucinations about her messy past and bugs the fuck out, and ends up going back to the, this bar that she likes and making out with the um, manager, barmaid, it's unclear quite, but it, there's some slightly sort of undergraduate poster style framing of some of their interaction it's a bit lechy so this is more hey saucy lesbians rather than hazard representation well yes and no i mean they've got quite like non-traditional body types i guess or non you know cyborgs are a fairly non-traditional body type well you've got the sort of scrawny looks like an ex-junkie cyborg um and the somewhat voluptuous um, non-white chick with a tail 
Um, <laughs> also non-standard. Yeah, but it, so that there's some representational stuff that's not awful, but I don't know. It's it's a bit it's a bit male gazy and it's a little bit fridgy as well. In the the uh, bar lady gets like shot through the chest at a, um, it, as a page turn surprise halfway through a sex scene, and it's just kind of a bit. You don't need that. No one needs that. They're getting it on. No, it's not cool. It's not great at the best of times. No, true. And it's by that fucking awful creepy cyborg as well. I don't like those guys. They're just gross. It, it, it gives some good gross cyborg. Okay. It, it's still quite good, but it spends a lot of pages on this, and it looks sensational, but the the way the attention moves, I find suspect. Lucy. I had that experience with Fatal. Mm. It looked extremely nice and just... <laughs> when it came to women yeah better than a lot of things still not good mm. comics that I've read was that what the question was it was yes I see because um, yeah, we're likely to get less creepy robot from you that's true that's true um, so apart from stuff that I've read for the theme today I've been checking out the which I haven't mentioned yet it's going to be a surprise yes apart a surprise from the fact theme. That, you know people have read something to come to this yes. it, it, it was sauerkraut right Yes, it's just cabbage, non-stop fermented cabbage. We might get kimchi in there, but it's a little off-topic. I have a quite big jar of probably frozen sauerkraut at the back of my fridge. I do like a bit of sauerkraut. If you want some. I had to Not throw away really. the kimchi. Why? Too I fermented? Gone a bit manky. Um, I... We're not really going to keep talking about sauerkraut. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to. They will. They always do. But I edit it out. Maybe that's what we could talk about while days away. Ooh. The Cabbage Cast. Yes, we should tell the good folks at home about the upcoming Roger and Lucy only podcast special edition and how we'd like our listeners to send in ideas of things they'd like us to talk about with Daddy not here. Okay, apparently these two can't look after themselves, so if you could send in suggestions uh, for what they can talk about and also I guess someone's going to need to wipe their asses, uh, that'd be great. Please do that. The first bit. Yeah. Yeah. I can wipe my own. Yeah. I'm, I'm housebroken. Got a robot arm. You look weirdly proud, both of you. <laughs> I'm still thinking about kimchi. Just took me a long time to learn. I really fancy some kimchi. Well, you live in Cambridge, so fucking tough. <laughs> you can buy kimchi in Cambridge. Yeah, me we go. Oh, I might look like a kimchi baguette. Please stop talking about kimchi. I've been reading the um, most recent Noah Van Skyver comics, both of which came out this year. What are they? They are uh, St. Cole and Fante Bukowski. I mean, anyone who got the newsletter will already know about these. Well, yes, my my central thesis is that this year he has published two books about very different types of assholes. Please regale us with your assholes. Well, you've got um, you've got Fante Bukowski. He's the left his dad's law firm to make it as a writer. He has a bottle that literally says "cheap wine" on it <laughs> on the floor of his scuzzy hotel room. He pulls a cat in from the street, and then nothing really happens with it until he uses it as a sort of prop for his own narcissism when he says goodbye. So it's cargo cult bohemianism. Yeah. Her, uh... Oh, nice. And he's surrounded by a bunch of people who are in the exact same place but are genuinely trying to 
make it and don't just expect the world to give it to them and they're all sort of horrified by his attitude so there's a point at which he goes to a Dave Eggers signing and Dave Eggers having met him ends up saying oh lord I wish I'd gone to computer college <laughs> <laughs> he's he's terrible he's the worst and it's um it's done really nicely it's printed in sort of pulp format color kind of thin papery pages okay. a small small paperback um yeah, if you like terrible people, I would say give that one a go. Well, I'm here, aren't I? And St. Cole? St. Cole is a different kind of asshole in that he means well. It's more of a study in the way that poverty and circumstance trap people into making really, really awful decisions. There's this guy um, who... He and his girlfriend have a kid by accident. He is working pretty much every hour he's awake to try and pay rent and give them stuff. She doesn't have a job, doesn't seem interested in getting a job. Her meth-smoking mother is coming to live with them and he doesn't really give a say in that even though he doesn't really like her. And he's drinking all the time, he's drinking a lot and he's stealing drinks from work. And it's, it's a week in his life and everything's riding on this promotion that he's been promised for being a good guy. He's maybe going to get assistant manager or some equal position in the shitty pizzeria that he works in. Um, and he fucks it all up. He fucks it all up colossally. He makes a series of awful, awful decisions out of basically stress and not really any other better choices and also drinking a lot. Um, and he gets out of it okay in the end, to some extent, but I'm not going to tell you how because it, it, it's trippy and weird at the end. Mm. It's great. It's really, really good. Um, how did you acquire these, by the way? I bought them from the Amazon. Okay, I was thinking they might be from some like niche boutique comic store. But no, 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 they're on the Amazon. It's that place over the way run by the nice Mr. Bezos. Right. Yes, oh, that guy. Old Jeff, I call him. He yeah. treats the staff so well. Yeah, I heard he was lovely. Yeah. I like how his reaction to that was to go public and say, but I'm not a bad guy. Yeah, I like the fact that his reaction to a report on his company having abuse, an abusive working culture was to send an all-hands email on a Sunday. Hmm. Yeah. It might have been a Saturday. One of the two. But no, I think if you have any interest particularly, and, and I definitely do, in, I guess, sort of systemic poverty and the way the fucked up capitalist system means that people don't often have a choice and that gets just totally disregarded by social and cultural and fiscal conservatives. This is mm. this is a good example of that just like being a stupid fucked up opinion that you haven't even thought about properly. Excellent. Mm? You also read The Abaddon. Yes, uh, more for the topic of mystery than anything. What is, what is The Abaddon? It is um, a webcomic that is now complete. Ooh, um, I can finish it. You can finish it. I read it partly because the um, it intrigued me in terms of the theme this week, and partly because having read Death by Design also for the theme, the art style was slightly reminiscent. It's kind of 50s style faces with a lot of pencil shading. Yeah, the Amazon is absolutely beautiful. I mean, I think you were reading it the other day, and I spotted it across. Mm. You could tell it instantly because the sort mm. of pink pastel-y colours and the sort of huge grey bits of the background, which is something Death by Design does as well, it uses colour mm -hmm. very sparingly. Um, just, even though I've not read it in years, it was sort of immediately very obvious what it was. It, it's it's a horrifying nightmare, basically. There's a, a youngish guy with head bandages and a suitcase who turns up in an apartment thinking he wants to rent a room there, and when he 
gets the room, no rent and no real conditions attached. Nobody really seems to know why they're there. And they're all fucking crazy. And yeah. uh, they his roommates are each has a weird obsession or some kind of strange hang up and they're not capable of functioning like normal people and a couple of days into his stay he realizes that behind the curtains are brick walls and the door doesn't open. Yeah. Um I don't, think it, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that they are in a form of limbo. Yes, they it, it brought about by their own they damage. It, it, they theorise that they are ghosts. They realise there is something wrong with them. There is something, but they don't quite know how or why or how to get out of it. They occasionally have sex with each other and can't feel it properly. There's something kind of missing. Basically, he ends up um, making his way through this strange building. He goes into other apartments, other um, spaces meeting a bunch of really weird fucked up people who are fucked up in really weird ways and um, yeah it's, it's finished now you get the complete arc the complete arc is a horrifying circle and yeah it's yeah. fun the plays around with people trying to leave as well and, mm. and just reappearing in similar sort of way to some stuff in Sandman mm. um, it's got nice flashbacks to his actual life as well he was a guy involved in some kind of war and, you know, he's sort of slowly trying to recover who he was before he came yeah. to this place. You sort of get the impression that given, given his age and given, his, given the, the fact that he's not a proper soldier, it seems, you sort of get the fact that he's been drafted and so it's presumably Israeli. Um, but it doesn't really go into massive detail. Mm. Um, it's a kind of vague cultural backdrop, but it's... Yeah. it's it's more sort of formless settingless. It's yeah, it's okay. very much at the edges. The setting is kind of like a 1930s, 1940s flop house sort of decaying fantasy. I started reading it years ago, and I don't know why I didn't finish it then. And then when Death by Design reminded me of it, yeah. I mean, I guess I the thing that intrigued me in terms of the theme, which I'm going to spoil for everyone, it's architecture was particularly the way that it plays around with interior space in a way that only a comic can. You do a lot of being trapped and a lot of moving in impossible ways like you would expect in a sort of ghost apartment block and that works really well in the medium. Do you know if it's being collected now that it's finished? There was a Kickstarter to allow him to finish it for the web basically to sort of pay his wages and expenses while he finished it. I'm not sure if there's any plans for a book it wrapped up a little while ago and there's nothing on his website or Twitter suggesting that that's the case so you may not it, be able it to it absolutely deserves one yeah it's a wonderful thing mm. that's going on the list mm. it's, yeah. it's quick as well I finished it in well I read it while I was at work and finished it in one day and did quite a lot of work at the same time okay. don't tell anybody who is my boss okay well I've been reading a few things. Um, I thought I'd read nothing. Turns out I've read some things. Mm. Um, so I read the latest volume of Chew, which was really quite good. Um, so is it sort of back on form a bit? It's sped up again. Stuff's happening at, at pace. It all feels like they're really accelerating things. How much Chew is there now? Ten volumes. <laughs> so is it finished? No. Fuck's sake. I think there's another two. Um, I think they said they were getting to 60 issues and that was it. Mm. Um, but it's got some fantastic jokes and the plot is actually moving at speed okay. again. So I think I'm probably about two trades behind. Yeah, we've, we've talked about it a lot. There's not much to add. It's still gross. It's still funny. Um, I remember, the reason I asked is I remember it being one of the ones you guys were talking about positively when we first started doing this, yeah. which was yeah. quite a while ago. Now. So long ago. 
yeah. so many years. And it slowed down a little bit. But it's sped up again. Yeah. And that's really all I think needs to be said if you enjoyed Choo Choo. It, it's back on form. Is it moving to resolution? Yeah, a lot happens in this one. I'm not quite sure. Because this resolves a lot of the main arc. Because the last one I read was the one that ends with them spacing the fuck out. What, the um, tripping through yeah. the city? Um, and kind of therefore having some sort of revelation about what the weird fruit is. And, yeah. yeah, that stuff doesn't get wrapped up, but some of the other stuff does. Um, oh, the sort of the vampire stuff. Yeah. 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 I'm trying not to say. <laughs> Sounds insane. There's a Russian who uh, has sharpened his teeth and is eating the other people with the food powers to gain their powers. And he calls himself the vampire. And there's a background story about a space fruit and frogs that are bred to taste like chicken, but they're partially hallucinatory. Um, it's just, it's all, yeah, it's not. It's all quietly batshit. It's not. It's not, it's not their, new, their new boss is a gingerbread man in a black suit. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, Officer Breadman. <laughs> is he somewhat elusive? He's just weird. He's not elusive. He who, just well, who runs the who runs the show now? Oh, and the old the old boss is now Cyborg Centaur. Yeah, I thought that was his partner. No, no, no. The old no. He's he's a cyborg with eyelids. Yeah. The other one is, so, is a cyborg but, centaur. Well, there's his. Two female, two previous bosses. There's mm-hmm. the ass, the asshole bloke, and the creepy old lady. Creepy old lady is still a creepy old lady. Mm-hmm. The other one is now a cyborg centaur. Why is there a gingerbread man? Uh, because the Someone other boss got demoted. No, no, wait, no. Why, why is there a sentient gingerbread man in this universe? No idea. Is it like a result of a weird food power? I thing assume or? someone made him. Yeah. Someone needs to be the boss. There, mm-hmm. is, there was something else with gingerbread. Anyway, but it doesn't need to make sense. It's fine. It's generally internally coherent, though. That's the weird thing about it. Well, that's because they're making shit up as they go along. They give it a Latin name and everyone goes, oh, okay, that's fine. They've just pulled a JK Rowling on you. Wake up, sheeple! <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> so I also read... Um, Big farmer's coming for you, too. <laughs> just one huge dude with a pitchfork. <laughs> I also read um, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Um, mm-hmm. Which is uh, INJ Colbard adaptation of the Lovecraft story, um, and it's uh, see so some of the art's a little bit uh, less polished than some of the more recent stuff, um, like the one you were reading. Was it just on King and Yellow? Yeah, I read King and Yellow and Charles Dexter Ward. Um, but uh, it's super cheap on Kindle for some reason, um, and definitely worth picking up. He does a great job of the sort of weird dreamscapes and when the unknown horrors are coming they're sort of presented in chiaroscuro so mm-hmm. it's it do like uh, me some well deployed chiaroscuro yeah it looks beautiful um, again we've sort of talked quite a lot about his stuff lately yeah. it's well, he's really lovely it's one of those um, he's always really cranky whenever I've met sorry I mean, his art is really lovely <laughs> I've got no idea if he is personally lovely Mr. Corbard if you're listening are you lovely? I mean, he seems nice he draws stuff for you yeah, yeah. that's good yeah, drew my doodled a copy of Celeste, which was lovely. Um, the other thing I read was Necropolis uh, by Jake Wyatt, which I oh, I, so I didn't, I didn't get to that. But you, um, you sent us a link, and it looks so beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, you sent us a link. Mm. Oh, you sent us a link. Yes, I did. I'll check yeah. it out. Yeah, no, I, I posted it. And Thanks. It was, it was in the show notes. I saw the picture. I didn't know what it was from. I thought you just uh, had a stroke. 
Okay, right, no, it's that, you see that, those words above it, with the, the link? Yeah, didn't yeah, read that. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. No, you just assumed assume that, that I had some sort of massive mental infarction. I assume you guys were just talking to each other. It's just a horrifying point. neurological episode. Right. Uh, no, I, I read all of Necropolis, which is something that, it's a webcomic at the moment, although it is being published at some point, but it's been dragging on for a while. Um, it's beautiful sort of fantasy world um, with a sort of fairy tale-ish introduction to the world and then it comes crashing into the reality of uh, unspeakable horror living in this uh, world mm. sort of at the edges of where the, the peace and light and harmony reign there are just villages that are being torn apart and it starts with this young girl and her life being ruined and her making a bargain then with creatures of the night circus to get a to get power which in this case comes in the form of a she's given the option of, of being able to charm people and that being a power or being able to have infinite knowledge but she picks the sword um, and then sets about murdering people hmm. uh, and at the point that it's been the point that it's just ended she's realized that power is no use if you don't exercise it and she's becoming ever more violent it's but the artwork, the artwork is just stunning, um, and it's taking forever for any of it to come out because presumably because it's the highest. Yeah, because it, it's beautiful, and he's got a job mm. um, and a family, and you know all of those things that are getting in the way of him making me some more comics. God damn it! Um, I, I guess I'll go and take a look at that link. You should. You should. Yeah, I, it's right there on on the notes. Um, it's. If I was going to make a sort of quick and, and tawdry comparison, Hellboy is probably a close point. It's got sort of ill-defined magic and myth- mythology in that, and it's that sort of same sort of... It makes sense in a sort of weird liminal way that if you look at it too hard, it doesn't, but it feels cohesive. Which is, which is a quality that good synthetic folklore has. I yeah. mean, you know, Gaiman's the master of that. Um. Yeah, um, there's not much of it yet, but read it. Read it. Yeah, as no, I fully intend to. Also, it's you know on topic because we're going to talk about architecture. Sometimes comics have pictures of buildings in them. Mm. This leads us quite neatly to architecture. Hooray! <laughs> Startling hypothesis, right there. Yes, so we we kind of got thinking about this, or at least I did, um, off the back of Darren Anderson's Imaginary Cities which is out this week and there's a yeah, reasonable odds you should buy um, which is not a comic it's it's a book about it's described as creative non-fiction it's like a sort of series of little essay-ish vignettes about places that don't exist or archi- imagined architecture architecture in fictions study. it's made up shit yeah. is what you're saying it, well, yeah it's, it's meticulously researched uh, or at least meticulously sourced um and it's a genuinely beautiful thing, but it's got these lots of lots of little sort of fun assertions about the way people think about buildings and think about architecture. And I've been following the chap on, on Twitter for a while because he just posts a lot of wonderful pictures of interesting interesting buildings and bits and bobs. And he's also also interested in comics and I've been had this rumbling around in the back of my head at least, I don't know about you guys, that you know, there's there's something about comics and architecture. Like having buildings is a necessity for an awful lot of um, comics, not necessarily all, mm-hmm. but like there is, particularly in, I mean, 
there, there are some superhero bits involved. Daredevil is an obvious example, but so is Spider-Man, where the built environment, if not architecture is an interesting thing per se, then definitely the built environment is an absolute predicate and almost has character and participation. Well, I mean, where's Spider-Man going to swing around to if there ain't mm. nothing to anchor his web stuff off? Think about it. And, where, and engagement with street-level crime is predicated on having a street. I know that sounds fatuous, but as it extends, as it extends into Daredevil, the place very much has character. So Batman's it, probably the archetype there yeah, as well. Yeah, but yeah. There's a lot of very trite Gothamist character writing out there. I, I, mean, I don't know if it's so much architecture as interesting as place is definitely interesting in, in comics, but there, there are some interesting examples of showing cool or exciting or peculiar architecture. You've got that whole, you know, a comic is a film with an unlimited budget thing that isn't really true and is actually a bit of a naff observation, but you can build some, look at stuff like the Incal or whatever, you can build some amazing yeah. structures provided you don't have to build them. Um, and you can show them inhabited and interacted with. And if you're in the business of trying to envisage a world rather than just wanking about, then yeah, you can sort of extend that a bit. Uh, so that's my waffly scene setting for comics are sometimes about architecture. One of the things I thought was interesting about the whole comics as an unlimited budget thing, um, the two times that Judge Dredd, which is obviously very, very heavy, heavily architectural because Mega City One is, you know, an impossibly mm. dense future city. Um, There's a really just, short chapter on that in imaginary yeah, cities. It's just, it's, it's a knot of highways and tower blocks. Mm. It's been done twice. The first one, the Stallone film, was a very, very literal take on 2000 AD at the time. Um, it was, you know, it was much more compact, and um, uh, you know, it was really sort of hyper densely populated. They had block wars, um, and they just threw in tons and tons and tons of references to the comics, and it didn't really work. It didn't work for other reasons as well. But the fan service side of really cramming in the sort of the, the literal take on the the sort of 70s pastiche success just didn't break down then when they did it again it looked a lot more normal like in the um, in the more recent Dread movie yeah that was a believable extension of of a decaying present I thought yeah um, which is not really what Mega City 1 has ever really been but it actually sort of felt a lot easier to swallow one film but whereas block though so in in the movie I was such uh, the Peachtree's box was such a feature. The kind of the the horrifying. The, it, it was a really nice articulation of the kind of a sort of metastasized plan voice and thing. Like the if Le Corbusier's failure to anticipate that replacing lateral slums with vertical ones would be a problem. Mm. Yeah. Um, sorry, I've got a lot packed into that, but the. His intentions were actually incredibly noble, and this idea of presenting open space was fantastic, but then stacking people vertically rather than horizontally just hadn't, it didn't seem to have clicked in his head that this was still a fucking awful idea. Um, and that, the, 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 those kind of, and you get these in sort of various renditions of sci-fi, these giant, faceless, almost windowless blocks. The interesting thing about the one in the Dread movie is that it's got the hollow center, yeah. that kind of Roman villa style thing, where, which wonderfully shows you, I mean, for a start it shows you the scale, but it shows you the fragility of its interaction with light. Um, it's, there's this rather naive sort of 1980s shopping center design style attempt to create an airy space in the most grudging offhand manner imaginable because it's this giant block 
that could never possibly be human or humane. And then this this sort of grudging opening to the sky, which is it, it, it's 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 almost laughing at the people that have to deal with this. Look at here's a look here's here's what you could have won as this sickly sunlight seeps into it and then slams closed when the thing goes into lockdown mode in this kind of very firm, very iron clad rusty. I, I love in a, in a similar way that there are four hundred levels of absolute squalor, and then at the top there's a penthouse because you always put a penthouse yes. at the top. And it, I, I, I love, I love that as a, as a visualization of. Here are the failings of well-intentioned urban redevelopment architecture. Now turn it all the way up to eleven, to the point where yeah. it's, it's almost breathtakingly insincere. But that, that sort of feels, sane and manageable in a way that the, um, you know, endless, endless uh, piling it all on, um, version of the dread movie, didn't. Um, and that's in part because that stuff came from you know 200 comics and yet it was here it all is in five mm. minutes um, it just felt a lot more manageable in the more recent Dread film whereas in the comics you can show sort of anything and, and mm. you can take it in because you've got time to look at it and think it dictated by yourself you're not having to follow it you get, you get some similar stuff in so I mean look at the think about how rarely you see the sky in Daredevil or you know, daylight through it. The sort of Daredevil has this wonderful sense of what it's like to be stuck on the ground floor of a genuinely multi-level urban landscape. Yeah, the character sort of swings around a little bit more, but it's still you don't really see the sky. You'll see Spider-Man against a you know a, a bright blue sky. Daredevil does the mm. same thing, and you'll see him against buildings shot from above. Mm. Uh, part of that is the vertiginous aspect, I suppose. Which I mean, you also need with, with, with Spider-Man to an extent, but there's a sort of playfulness to the Spider-Man stuff, whereas this is mm. much more grim. So one thing we all read was um, Robert Moses, mm. which was um, a fairly recent book from No Brown. Yeah, Robert Moses by Pierre Christin and Olivier Ballet's um, about Robert Moses, the uh, so-called architect of New York, the sort of city planner who basically took New York from um, early 20th century slums and factories and turned it into the city that it is today. Also, I think yeah, it's interesting, so when you guys are talking about sort of mega cities and kind of piling stuff on top of stuff, multi-level living and highways and all of that kind of urban shit, that's where Moses' dream was actually mm. going. And the interesting thing about New York as it currently stands is how much of that they shut down and how different it would be if he'd go all the way yeah. through with it. Well, look at the yeah. High Line, right? Which is mm. something that should be a Moses-style hellscape that's been converted into the essence of a transitory space. The High Line is the garden bridge, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a huge thing. I'd, I'd love to have seen it. So Moses was maybe not the father of, but an accidental or possibly not accidental early perpetuator of what's been described as, was it post-hypermodern? Uh, not sure, sorry. Um, Warren else talks about it in Desolation Jones, and there's a, there's a book about it, but it says, but it might be super modern um, spaces. This idea of a completely abstracted and nodal geography, mm. where the map of London is the tube map. Mm-hmm. Um, places, Cabousier did this a little, or it was one of his failings, was not noticing it, which is that the assertion that places are your destinations, kind of your offices, your homes, your hospitals, mm-hmm. your shops, 
and but nothing of consequence can possibly happen in between, and therefore the function of the um, interstitial spaces is to be got out of the way as quickly as possible. So Moses carpeted New York with highways, slum clearance to build highways, and then built very artificial destinations like the public pools and things, which were great. You know, they, people mm. did appreciate the middle class them. beach. Yeah. But his conception of a city, not wildly unlike Le Corbusier's, but Le Corbusier, I would suggest, was probably a little more humane in some of his approach, was of a series of incredibly functional nodes that completely rejected and also completely motorized the idea of travel between them. So more of an L.A. Yeah, so L.A. is is the the horrifying one of those at the moment. But what's interesting to me about the, the comic Robert Moses is that it doesn't do a sensational job of conveying the feel of the space. I mean, partly because a lot of it's about his personal story. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. The, the, so I thought it was a genuinely beautiful book, mm. but it doesn't, yeah, you're right in that it doesn't have that that sense of place. It does a sort of greatest hits. Here's the flat iron building. But, so. And if you, if you really want to feel this, if you want to get an idea for the fact that this stuff is both horrifying and beautiful, you don't read that. You go and look at C.R.W. Neverson's um, Soul of a Solar City. Um, but which has that kind of full-on sublimity thing going on with the vanishing points. I'll try and put a link to it in the show notes. But there is a guy who has kept a um, has has made a a Google Map construction of what New York would look like if Robert, all of Robert Moses' projects had gone through. Hmm. Um, so he's genuinely disgusting. Cancelled superhighways and things like that. Yeah, oh, so, you know, you know, he was going to put the 10-lane superhighway through the middle of it. Fucking hell. Um, so that's quite interesting. I, yeah, as I say, it's, it's, it's not the, the sort of best book at, to look at from in terms of everything architecture, but it is a great... Um, Concise look at how these things, how how sort of form and function get put together, and sort of personalities that are behind them. It's quite slight, but I think it does an okay job of that inhabiting space thing. Um, yes, it might be. So there's a thing that books that uh, comic books that, that dwell on architecture heavily could be, which is a glorified architecture coffee table book, right? Like the sort of Faden Compendium of Robert Moses. This is not the Faden Compendium of, of, of Robert Moses, but being narrative and being a bit more kinetic, I guess, um, you get to play a bit more with the inhabitants of space and the the way in which people sort of use it. So the 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 Rob Moses, the Nobel book, does sort of show his constructions in use in a way that a sort of flat photography compendium couldn't. And rebelled against kind of in sort of functional and dysfunctional types of use. How great is it that we're at a point where a comic about city planning is actually something marketable? So, so I guess the kind of the, the cultural and historical thing that was interesting for me was I guess I had no sense of perspective, of perspective on this stuff in sort of geography lessons in secondary school, the whole idea of the kind of central business area of a city being somewhere where the people didn't live, of the kind of sort of distinction between everyday lives and the way that commerce and capitalism worked was absolutely taken for granted and it was kind mm. of also taken for granted that that wasn't necessarily an inherently good thing. You know, urban decay was known and taught to children as standard and then actually seeing all the sort of the Jane Jacobs stuff, the movements against mm. Robert Moses as a relatively fresh thing of the sort of 
the transition from the early 20th century idea of basically the privileged classes knowing what was best and being able to plan everything out nicely for the poor in a way that wouldn't inconvenience anybody to actually the people living in this space also have feelings about it and are able to sort of have a voice and agitate about that. That was really interesting. I mean, it is essentially a lot of stuff that, that's taken from other biographies of Wolf Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. But as an introduction, I think it's a lovely thing. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't know much about Robert Moses before, uh, before reading. I sort of knew the name and roughly what he'd done. Um, didn't realise how much of an asshole he probably was. Uh, idiomatically, it was, it was great that you occasionally got little flashes of the people who wrote this didn't have English as a first language. So the phrase, the diamonds of baseball multiply just really captivated <laughs> me. It is, isn't it? But, you know, you wouldn't... I can't tell if that's deliberate that. or not, because it's quite dry the rest of the time, isn't it? There are a couple of little things that make me think it's an idiomatic translation thing as opposed to a stylistic choice, because it felt kind of out of kilter with the rest of the tone. Was the translator credited? I'm not sure if... I don't know. Was it written in French originally? Originally in French, okay. yeah. Um, there was also just a little tiny pocket of outstanding misogyny. Which bit was that? Um, talking about the sort of various categories of poor people who got fucked over by his stuff, which is good, I'm okay with that. There was a panel about um, the exploited girls, they're women, don't call them girls for fuck's sake, who um, in their sort of sweatshops were being royally fucked over and they looked just totally placid <laughs> being fucked over and worked to death, these girls. Hmm. It was kind of nice that they called them out, but I kind of wish they tried harder. Fair. But, you know, very, very, given other things you could read that are way more misogynistic, I wouldn't write this one off because of that one panel. It was good otherwise. In astounding words to come out of the, white, the mouth of a middle-class white man, I didn't notice that. But neither would I have a couple of years ago. It's the, it's the background radiation yeah. level shit that you don't notice until basically once the false consciousness of... That kind of stuff gets pulled away from your eyes. You start just seeing every fucking where. Did you see that wonderful um, <laughs> Gamergate tweet? If I applied any Sarkeesian's logic, I'd see sexism everywhere. So, teetering, <sighs> teetering on the brink of a perfect realisation. Fuck. So close and yet... Fucking idiots. Oh, someone just, 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 just kick them past the finish line, they'll get there. Um, I think also, I mean, you describe Robert Moses as an asshole. It struck me he was less an asshole and just entirely of his time a man with no concept of privilege. Yes, that's true. I mean, well, no, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push a little against You're gonna that. You're going to push your asshole? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm going to... I'll gonna, take that. I'm gonna... That's not to say he wasn't, but it seemed uh, most of the most sort of egregious shit about the poor came from that very easy assumption that lives this very day from people above a certain class point that poverty is about being inherently degraded that it's yeah. a sort of a feature of the individual rather than a feature of the system yeah that horrifying and the paternalistic of, I know better than you yeah. and I'll fix it for you then. and then the survivor bias stuff of well I did this and mm. but I think so Yes, there's certainly a complete failure of privilege and that sort of patronising attitudes of the public baths thing, some mm. good, some bad, sitting on top of a poisonous attitude. But the way it paints his actual visceral personal disgust for these people yes. suggests to me that it 
yes, there is a lack of privilege, sorry, a lack of awareness about privilege, but there's also just enough engagement to suggest that there's enough malice to call the man an asshole. I think, I think also the asshole narrative has played out in his approach to getting what he wanted, which mm. was essentially to storm into the mayor's office and threaten to resign unless yeah. he got what he wanted, which Ridiculous worked tantrum. until he was actually expendable, mm. or they worked out he was actually expendable. Yeah. Um, just, just some fucking nonsense right there. Mm. I, I don't know if anyone's done one, but I would like to see the companion piece um, on Le Cabusier. Particularly, I'd like to see something that covered... I mean, the obvious thing would be the, the later stage of his work and kind of the failure to rebuild Paris. Mm. It would be an interesting companion piece to that. There's a fairly similar story in kind of their career trajectories, but Cabusier, actually an architect rather than a planner, less power to get stuff done, more capacity to design things also a greater depth of, I would probably argue, delusion. Um, more humane than often attributed, but mm. there's an interesting thing. I was talking to Alan on Twitter about this, actually. Um, and I, I wonder if the period covered by Sir Le and Robert Moses, and the first half, it's early to mid-20th century mm. sort of architecture, I, I have very little evidence for this. It's a hypothesis, but um, things that you might do for fancy people's houses don't scale very well to solving urban problems. And I think one of the failures of architectural modernism or architectural brutalism is basically a failure to sit down and think about scaling. Mm. So. Something that is striking and splendid on a small scale, particularly in the kind of brutalist end of things, kind of becomes a cattle truck when you try and put a lot of yeah. poor people in it. So. The Barbican is an example of this working well. Mm. Of course, you now can't afford to live there. But at the time, it was, what, like lower middle class housing when built? Um, one of my relatives lived there. so I don't know how affordable it was when it first went up, is what I, where I'm getting I, here. I don't, I don't know. How fancy was your relative? Uh, reason, reasonably well off, but, you know, we are Irish, so mm. we're scum to you people. Mm. Um, so I put that sign up outside. I don't know how you got in. Well, the one that just says fuck off, Dave. I put a hat on. No one thought an Irishman would own a hat. No, that's true. That went to a dark place. It did go to a dark place. Yeah, so the the Barbican is a reasonable example of... So you've got the mixed heights and the the spread and the garden spaces and the bits and pieces, and it would still be quite quite oppressive if it were uniformly inhabited. Mm. But then some of the sort of actual Le Cabousier tower blocks, or worse, the cheap, the sort of the things that took that as a jumping-off point... Oh, God. the thing that the city the council humanity. made instead, yeah. yeah. They still, still rest on a similar idea to, again, what Lucuse would have liked to do with Paris, these kind of monoliths with green space in between. But they share the total lack of capacity to think about place, and they share the total lack of capacity to think about, about scaling, about what extra problems are introduced when you put the population of a village into a tiny stack slower. It's also... Um the idea that you can take somebody who's used to living in a sort of street gardens, maybe at the back type of complex, mm. even if it's a slum, and transplant them up without giving any space or time for thinking about what that means and expect them to thank you for making their life better. Yeah. It's kind of arrogant. Kind of. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. I wonder if, again, I don't know enough about architecture, but I wonder if at some point, probably around about the beginning of the 20th, the sort of... It, somewhere in the middle of modernism presumably the idea of streets being a thing just sort of fell out of fashion and then must have been rediscovered but you get this thing um, 
Well, you had a massive, uh, certainly in the UK, you had a massive um, influx from the countryside into the major cities mm. in mm. the 1800s. Um, and basically, population densities were just, I mean, they're pretty literally stacked on yeah. each other. The buildings didn't go any higher. You just literally put yeah. people on top of one another. So I, don't, I don't follow a great deal of um, Hester's cycle stuff, but it, it goes to an interest in infrastructure and in town planning. And I came across this phenomenon through following some mixed place faking, which is, and I, I don't know if this is what it's actually called, but it's what someone was calling it, and I think it's quite a nice description of a, a phenomenon that's very real. Um, architectural and particularly development company visualizations mm-hmm. of what something's going to look like. Mm. We'll liberally pepper things with striding 2.4 children couples in slightly stylized renditions mm-hmm. um, and slightly gooey light. And we'll attempt to make any given development look like a place. But when you actually think about how the use of the space will behave, that ain't no place. Mm. So um, heavily motorized town developments that are designed to look like people will actually cross them. No, that's going to be traffic pelting along at 30 or locked up in gridlock. That lovely street that you have people... There isn't a cafe outside. There's no terraced seating. And I think that's the evolution of the inhumanity of some of this stuff, which Mm. is in the sort of high, the, the, the brutalist pile of high, sort of the shit end of brutalism. I think it hadn't even occurred to them that there was a place to fake, and the modern apology is to put lipstick on it. Mm. That's one of the things that um, Interiori mm. uh, covers very well, um, which is, I mean, it's, we talked about it ages ago, but it's a book about a sort of fairly generic tower block in a small Italian city. Um, and it's about people, the differences between people looking at this as home, people who see this as a transitory space. Um, and how they sort of react to it. And, you know, it's a possibly hallucinated cartoon rabbit moving between all of the people in this building and, and seeing how they react to the space, how they react mm. to each other as, a, as a result well. of their perception of the space. It's got this almost yeah. hopperish eye of alienation. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a beautiful book. I mean, it's not, it's not really about the architecture, but it's certainly about the tower block as, as mm. a place and how people live in it. I think going back briefly to the whole particularly of the sort of late modernist, maybe brutalist style of architecture and, and planning particularly and just the lack of thought going into that. Got me thinking about East Road Roundabout. Yeah. Designed, take the pedestrians in an alley underneath, nice and safe, no cars. Little cars. It's fucking horrible to negotiate on foot. The it's alleys disgusting. are sketchy as fuck. The whole thing's totally run down. I'd much rather just have a crossing at road yeah. level. It's actually acutely disorienting as well. Yes, also, who thought that was a good yeah, idea? You can't, see, you can't necessarily see where you're going to come out. Also, the signage is not good either. The tunnels are five feet wide and you're meant to fit, you know, the bikes and people through That's that. this exact failure to understand that interstitial places are places. Yeah. So the idea that we might navigate by visual reference point, you go down under the street, you can't see anything. Mm. The idea that pedestrians might actually have a sense of place as opposed to being, being engaged in a grotesque inconvenience that can be popped up into a nodal system is... I mean, personally, I fucking love these hypermodern nodal systems. I love the tube. I actually almost like airports. Mm. This idea that you go into an anonymous machine at one end, that, that you start in a place and you end in a place and everything in between is bizarre and semi-real and transitory. I, I like and there's I, a WH Smiths. I love, yeah. I love metro systems in, in new cities. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I acknowledge that it's inhumane and brutal. I don't want the world to be built like that, but I do enjoy going there to play. Tourism. Mm. Mm. 
I can just recommend the Prague Metro briefly, it is excellent. Oh, favorite, no. favorite Metro systems? Uh, Barcelona had the long snaking cars without carriages without dividers and air conditioning a good 10 years before the mm-hmm. underground did. That was, it's Paris though, it's got to be Paris. I can't believe they're getting rid of so many of the flicky up uh, door rolling stocks. There were hardly any last oh, time I, I was that. there. And the whole thing stinks of piss and there's always a guy asleep somewhere and someone else with an accordion. But It's Paris, it's what the can same. I say? <laughs> As above, so below. Uh, <laughs> Um, Mr. Congaree, your favourite metro system? I don't know. Um, probably Prague, just because the different stations are so weird. They have they have different decoration um, at each station, and they look insane. Like there's one of them, which is just walls and walls of these glass tubes mm. with um, rolling wire in them, as though they're light bulbs, but they're not light bulbs. There's one that just looks like a giant Dalek. It's just curved copper walls with these huge balls on them, and each mm-hmm. one just has this different look. That's exciting. Um, I, I strongly desire to see the sort of the former communist mm-hmm. or currently communist metros, your your Pyongyangs and other sort of Eastern Bloc places, just for the sheer let's build a great big mm-hmm. fancy looking underground art gallery place and call it a metro station. It's, you know, few other political systems have that degree of absurdity to in, their transit. Mm-hmm. In terms of just using it, Berlin's really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to, like, honestly, I've got a massive, massive love for the London Underground. I, that would probably be the one that takes it for me. But um, It's the first, first and best. I'm, I'm going to say Montreal, because Ooh. they've got some really the lovely, world. concrete horror, like, more brutalist stations, and it's quite efficient. I was getting on well with Hamburg until I opened the door to one carriage, and there was just a great big pile of sick. It's not ideal. No. <sighs> I mean, and you're in Hamburg, so it's, yeah, probably, it's, not it's probably just city. cheese and potatoes. Not a great city. Didn't enjoy it's it. Apparently, it's a great party city. Is that not appealing to you? We were told by the receptionist at our hostel, which was a brothel as recently as 2008 and had a pole hole under a coffee table in reception, that we were welcome to make party. There was a 24 hour petrol station that sold cheap Jägermeister and Red Bull and little kegs of beer. So Christ. we drank a lot, we made a lot of party. You do make party. Yeah. I've, n- I've not been, and um, on I shall town, not I don't make a party to. in Hamburg. No, it's right. kind of grim as a city. There's not a huge amount to see. It's all very sort of red brick and industrial, mm. and I didn't actually want to play Ultimate Frisbee, which was the point of going there, so didn't have a great time. I'm Although, very confused about this holiday. A friend of mine did manage to dislocate his shoulder, and he had to be taken to the Krankenhaus. The broken house. He did not go in the Krankenwagen, unfortunately. Pity. Yeah. The the broken wagon. Talking of um It's it's I love German. European yeah. translations. I'm 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 brought to uh Death by Design, I'm brought to Room or Rome House, depending on how Dutch we want to pronounce the guy's name. Thank you for bringing us back on track in the most obtuse way possible. Thank that, you. That was, that was excellent. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, could you do it again? I don't think I could. Yeah, well, no. I'm hoping it's Rome House because that Rome would mean house. whipped house yeah. in Dutch. Mm. Wow. That's I don't think horrifying. It, it is. So the reason house isn't actually a Dutch word. I found mm. this out earlier. Mm. The reason we looked at Batman Death by Design out of all of the Batman in which Gotham features predominantly um, is because it's called Death by Design, it's about design and designers. Mm. So we, we picked that for our little architecture show. It's sort of space as trap a bit, isn't it? It's kind of... A little bit. Not as much as um, Batman Destroyer, which 
um, was sort of something that came about after the 1989 Batman film and the very, very heavily stylized gothic um, uh, Gotham in that. There was a comic two or three years later which posited that Gotham had been built as a trap for demons. Um, and it's, no, it's street. It's, you are the demons. It's street design was to, was there to you know funnel people. It was basically to doing a Hawksmore. Yeah. I should have um, done take on on Gotham, and it was quite interesting. I should have done John because I could get from John to Bruce Wayne via John Wayne, and that would have been a better joke. It would. There are no horses in this though. No. So Death by Design is uh, by Chip Kid, um, who is sort of best known, I think, as a as a book designer. But he's also... Uh, Dude can fucking draw. Uh, he wasn't the artist. He wasn't the artist. Mm. It was um, someone else whose name will be in the show notes. Who's really fucking good. Who is really fucking good. I thought it was sorry, I thought it was him. No. Oh, no. right. Well, whoever did Death by Design can fucking draw. Yes. I think he did the end papers, mm. which were also beautiful, but probably not the point of the book because they're end papers. Um, but it was, it's... Um, Essentially, a standalone, completely unrelated to other Batman stories about sort of 1920s, 1930s Batman in a Gotham that is more New York than ever, and it's just being rebuilt, and it's fights between union bo- union bosses and ganglands and and plutocrats like Batman. Um, <laughs> uh, a good point, well made. <laughs> Um, but I mean that is part of the point. There's yes. a, there's there's a there's Wayne Central Station, which is just a standard for Grand Central Station. And it's having the same fights about preserving the architectural style as opposed to people who want to knock it down and make way for the future. I mean the way that I characterised in the notes that I made the dichotomy for Wayne himself was literally tearing down and or saving your dad. Yeah, mm. nice little bit of. Yeah. Extremely overt symbolism. There. Yeah, there was a there was a, a bit going on there, um, and it's sort of it's between people who want to build something new and people who want to preserve um, in various different ways. Weirdly, it doesn't sort of it's not building porn in a way that sort of some architecturally focused no. things can it's be. It's cultural architecture yeah. porn. So yeah. another note that I made was it's like if people actually cared about architecture. Mm. The city newspaper yeah. has architectural get your, reporters. Get your top architectural yeah, reporter exactly. out people there. People actually give a shit about this stuff. It's, get them out on the architecture beat. It's entertainment to some extent yeah. and that's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, so you have the big gala for the... Um, glass top skyscraper that you can look down through which is of course immediately crashed by the Joker um, smashy 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 um, I love I mean I don't think it's a great story but I love the design I love the, mm. the um, what it does with the buildings the way it talks about the buildings um, it's got some made up bullshit terms there is no such thing as maxi minimalism for example um, there is such a thing as half peen hammers though yes that's true I'm glad you picked up on that hammers. Yes. Ball- Peen hammers. Yay. But it takes so much. I mean, it just liberally borrows from uh, movie serials. Mm. Like, there's, there's ray guns, there's a mm. ridiculous little flying. It's got that kind of rocketeer vibe. Yeah. The, um, the exacto line, I'll just stay out here, thank you, floating mysteriously when <laughs> he's invited <laughs> in. Um, it was charming. Yes, there is, a, there is a new villain or anti-hero in it called Exacto, named after the Exacto knife that an architectural designer or any designer would use, in fact, um, to cut things because they're very sharp knives. Um, uh, who is also drawn as a young chip kid <laughs> in the most ridiculous 
ever Mary Sue. Um, draw, draw, ha- have your a very talented friend draw you in a comic book and have you fucking team up with Batman. I mean, nice work if you can get it, but mm. my God. <laughs> I hadn't realised that. Yeah, no, he's just drawn as Chip Kid. He has this, I mean, the good thing about that, I guess, is that Chip Kid now has a hairstyle that a designer in the 1920s might have had. Mm. You know, you guys know how I feel about, about the Batmans. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I didn't hate this. Really? Yeah, this is the first Batmans I've not hated. I thought you'd hate it more. No, hated it considerably less. Partly it was so fucking beautiful. So the problem with the um, Dark Knight stuff that I tried to read a few mm. months ago it's weird and 80s as shit. Don't care about mutants. Don't care about all this fucking stuff. It's too noisy. I don't like how it looks. This was this seduced yeah. me with its beauty. That's the, I mean, Frank Miller's always tried to overwhelm, and in The Dark Knight Returns, there's always there's a bit of that. And certainly in, in The Dark Knight Strikes, again, there's way more of it. He described it as draw, trying to draw as though you were sat too close to the television. I felt overwhelmed only with annoyance and stopped reading the book. Fair. But no, this was this was the, just the use of the, the pencil work, the, the light and the shadow was just extraordinarily beautiful. There's a couple of bits I saw that really annoyed me, um, which were, I mean, the whole thing is basically just huge pencils scanned in, barely edited, um, just some mild colour work done in the computer overlay. But there are a few bits where it's been edited and they've blown up sections of it. Mm. And it's so badly pixelated, it just mm. looks complete crap next to the rest of the book, which is of an astonishingly high quality. We, but that's just a petty annoyance. That's okay. I'm airing my grievances. It's, it's also, it's, it's really good at doing the period. Mm. It, like the visual styling, it just absolutely hits that. I think there are quite a few, um, quite a few things where the, the characters are drawn from actors of the time. Right. I think the Joker certainly is in the way that he's mm. been designed. But yeah, the the period is sort of, you think of it as sort of central Manhattan of the time. Everything in it is just 1920s Manhattan. Classy and stylish as fuck. But also the joke is there. Yes. Um, so we were talking earlier about the, um, I can't remember what it was in, but the use of the, the, the building with the penthouse at the top with yeah, light yeah, there and everywhere else. So... It's a kind of a weird tangential connection, but the, there's a picture of Wayne Central Station as it originally was with light flooding in. And then I think it was on Twitter this week I saw something saying that that doesn't happen anymore because the buildings in Grand Central Station, the buildings around it are so high now that you can't actually get light shafts coming in mm. through the glass. But it was, it was also, you know, the, the fact that, that the light there was being used symbolically of the old aspirational yeah. shit as opposed to the gritty dark stuff that seems to come up quite a lot mm. it's not just the buildings themselves it's how they interact with with light yeah. and space well how buildings use light and occupy space is this this huge thing um and it's kind of missing from some treatments of it in comics and kind of prominent in others like you know there's, there's a fair bit of it in in batman um the interesting extreme example given in um, Imaginary Cities is the, I think it was the is it Celtic burial chamber designed to have a the particular shaft of light coming into a particular spot on a particular day with mm. solstices. And mm. Yes. That. So, that, you know, your absolute extreme version of you build completely environmental light in as a feature so strongly that it only has meaning at this one highly specific point. There's kind of one end of the spectrum. It's like that puzzle in Skyrim as well, mm. with the, the mirrors, then it tells you something. 
probably. Yeah, sorry. It was really hard. It took me a long time. There's a wonderful um, thing in the beginning of Asterius Pollock where it, which is just, oh, I was re- I've been rereading it and. It is wonderful. It's so good. I, I mean, the guy's such a dick, but it's, it's so good. <laughs> the character, not David Masekele. Yeah, not, not, not David Masekele. Would you, if we're going to do a part two, would you guys object to saving that for that and I'll reread it? And yeah, we'll sure. do it properly. Because I need to properly go over it. But the nice. first, just to briefly dwell on this, the first couple of pages do this wonderful thing where you start with a building an outline, almost like a child's drawing of it. Mm-hmm. So it's so abstracted and does absolutely nothing with light. And then as the structures gain dimensionality, so light becomes important. Mm-hmm. And it's, the first few pages are like a summation of the entire thing. It, the first five or six pages are us seeing him in his home, waking up as his house catches fire and running away. Actually, Mazza Kelly, now that I think of it, has done a lot of stuff that we can probably look at mm-hmm. in part two, because he's done Batman Year One. Um, he has done the comic book adaptation of City of Glass. Um, and he also did quite a lot of Daredevil. Mm. So he's yeah, big I, I, with the gritty urban. I guess this is, insofar as like making some glib attempt to impose structure on it, I guess this is us asking us asking ourselves questions about what architecture might have to do, do with itself in comics. Mm. And we can go away and try and find some things to say about that. Yeah, something I want to, I want to hold off for the next one is um, From Hell, which obviously mm. has... Mm. Huge symbolic... Yeah, the sort of the, the Masonic Hawksmoor mm. theory of how London was rebuilt after the Great Fire... Um, Do we get to talk about the psychogeographies? Uh, shall we all be flaneurs? Yes. Oh, well, that sounds like a lot of effort there. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, but, I mean, Alan Moore basically says this is all bollocks, but then goes on to build such a coherent thing that it becomes actually kind of marvellous by the time From Hell wraps up. Kind of consistently undermining it, though, with the, but of course this is all bollocks. But let yeah. me just tell you some more of, yeah. of this bollocks yes. that is mine. But, but the whole thing, like even though it's all based on stuff that he doesn't believe and stuff that's fudged, mm. forms such a cohesive which, whole as a piece of fiction. Which and is it is now, it, it is so big and monolithic, and it's so elaborate, and the book itself has seeped such, so much. The book is literally a monolith. Into, into consciousness, not least because it's a ripper thing and that's got its own accretive crazy baggage yeah mm. that it's now become part of the mythos of London but the book is about in part how it how it has that cultural baggage mm. how it has that resonance yeah sorry where I'm going with that this is kind of it's one of the theses theses in the opening sections of Imaginary Cities which is that you have the thing you have the imagined concept of the thing and then the imagined concept gets reinstantiated in later iterations of the thing mm-hmm um, so the bullshit nonsense mythology that From Hell codifies has worked its way into received myth of London and there are cultural artifacts built on top of it so the idea of the Mad Hawksmoor Masonic London is now I mean it wasn't I'm sure it wasn't original to From Hell but no. it is now a common foundational trope of other stuff you might build on top um, I find that quite interesting I think something also we've not really touched on today, but we might come back to next time, briefly with the Abaddon, is the way comics can do impossible things with space and with buildings, and yet often choose not to, and sort of examples Mm. where they have, we could probably dig into some more. Well, when we reconvene, I would like to look more at the sort of, um, the more tangential, mysterious, the from hells and, and, uh, and, and so on. There's a lot of interesting stuff in Sandman as well. It creates a lot of fantastical worlds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's sort of pulling back from the brink of being too weird. So I reread World's End last night. 
Which is some some proper good Sandman. I love the horrifying nest of story after story. It, go, it goes many frames deep. But the Necropolis stuff is deliberately ordinary. The thing I love about the Necropolis story in World's End is that it takes this ludicrously high gothic concept of a Necropolis as city, this, this city where undertakers, curators of the dead are taught. It, its population is entirely transient. It's... Um, you you come there as an apprentice if your your parents can implicitly it doesn't go into too much detail but yeah you in order to have a fine funeral provided by the necropolis one of the you can pay for it by selling your children into bondage they mm. become the population of the necropolis who learn how to be these great master undertakers multiple this huge sprawling space inhabited by the dead and very few living people who look a little bit corpsey. Um, and it massively normalises it. You basically get what is effectively like mortuary Harry Potter, right? It's a rollicking boarding school yarn in the necropolis that is then used as the backdrop to tell a ghost story. I want to read this. Can I borrow it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's in it's 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 one of the longer sections in World's End, mm. and is in that sense. This wonderful, fantastical landscape. It, the, the the way the stories work. It's completely predicated on it becoming. Fantasticalized, I guess, normalized a bit. It's there's this section we did all the things the apprentices normally did. We and then reels off a list of things involving having your first sexual experience on some kind of dark altar surrounded by corpses. It's just you know that's how it goes down. Mm. But the real scary shit came this one night. <laughs> I just kind of it. There's the playful evasion with doing something weird with the styling of the space. I like the um, so just on the, the the same topic of the undertakers the um, the idea of mythical undertakers, which obviously is you know you can trace that back to many um, many mythological structures having Bleeding mythological characters. Of the edge, yeah. Almost, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you have um, you know for example an American gods. Some weird special shit in Gunner Creek. I was literally about to say the same yeah. thing. Uh, in the in the the book Angel Maker, you mm. have the the society of waiting men who are mm. all um, all of the undertakers of this sort of ongoing society of undertakers doing things mm. right as a sort of apprenticeship and mythological mm. society. It's something that comes up again and again, and yeah, as you say, it sort of hovers around the edge of being uh, a psychopomp, but also as with Sandman and that and Angel Maker, just. A good hearty trade to have mm. as well. Well, I think we should uh, probably wrap up. Yeah, yeah. Let's reconvene and talk about weird esoteric architecture mm. in comics. If we've got the, the um, we've got the pragmatism out of the way. Let's let's get good and weird now. And with a with a run up, I'll see if I can come up with one of my kind of bullshit unifying explanations. That'll be good. I think also if the people at home have got any particular weird esoteric architectural shit in the comics that they like, they should point us at it. They should. Also, uh, another call. If you have questions, topics that you want just Roger and Lucy to cover without me here for some reason, if you've been thinking, God, I really wish that monotone twat wasn't there so they could discuss this, now is the time to tell us. If you, if you bear in mind he's essentially our moderator and our conscience... Mm. Think, think what liberties could be taken with him away. We we tried to work out what we might know more about than Dave, and I think it was being sad and gay stuff. Possibly cheese, but not necessarily. Cheese, cheese being sad and gay stuff. I know a fair amount about cheese. That's true. What about yeah. being sad and gay stuff? 
I know what they do. Mm. They they do the the sex thing, but they use the back. The bum hole. Yeah. Sometimes. I know what they do. Not I know what you're up to. <laughs> uh, I think I'm probably less sad on the whole. Okay. Yeah, probably. But I know well, how to well, do what's it. What's that like? Uh, it's kind of tiring, to be honest. Mm. Because I don't sound like I'm, I'm happy or anything. Mm. I just sound like this. But I'm fucking dancing un- underneath the table. Inside yeah. I'm dancing. Mm. Inside you. Have you seen that film? Uh, it's about some disabled men in Ireland who have a beautiful friendship. No, I have not it's seen that film. depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever you want to ask Lady Tom Paulin and Captain Whoopsie, you can ask them. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> Cold end right there. <laughs> no, let's say goodbye. I've already told about the story of the time I went drinking with Tom Paul in on the podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. that's good. You've told us on the podcast you didn't have him in here for a couple of drinks. That's no, we could do, maybe. I'm not sure my credentials would still carry. He's not that big. We can we can just probably carry the him. The three up. of us could definitely bundle him away. Yeah. He's can we can sack. we not can we not kidnap Tom Paul in please? We could not. Okay, who do you want? Like, who do you want to ki- kidnap off the Newsnight Review cast? I don't know. I can't. I haven't seen Newsnight Review for ages. I don't know who's still on it. I try and avoid that sort of thing. Yeah. Bonnie Greer seems nice. Mm. Probably too nice for us. Yeah, probably. Tom Polo is definitely not too nice for us. No, he's a shit. Yeah, he's got a dark core, like Ben and Jerry's, but less delicious, and it's not made of salted caramel. Well, with that. Good night. Good night. Good evening.